This is the Business Storytelling Show, a top global marketing podcast listened to in more than 100 countries, live streamed on social media, and broadcast on DBTV. Christoph Trapp chats with industry leaders to help your company tell better business stories. Here's today's episode. Hey, 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 business storytellers, Christoph Trapp here, episode 649 on deck today. Really appreciate everyone tuning in. And we're going to talk about how do we connect the dots in marketing to insights and what's an insight to begin with. Um, I would like to remind everyone we are back on Amazon. So everything around me, not that Iowa Hawkeyes football helmet, but the sound panels, the fake plant, everything is for sale on Amazon. So if you are watching on Amazon, just check out the carousel below. If you are not watching on Amazon, um, just search for Christoph Trapp on Amazon and you should be able to find me on there. So today's guest, uh, Chris Kocek, he wrote the book, uh, Any Insights Yet? Connect the Dots, Create New Categories, is joining me today to talk about that exact same topic. You can uh, scan that QR code over there if you like to, if you're not watching on Amazon, and uh, if you want to give it a read. But let's find out. How do we even do that? What's an insight? Uh, how do we make it work to determine patterns? And who actually does use insight, or are people just making it up as they go? So let's find out. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Really glad uh, we were able to connect uh, and talk about your your book and the topic at hand here. Um, so let's first of all start here. I mean, with my little bit of a snarky comment on, you know, are people even looking at stuff or they're just making things up as they go? I mean what is the prevalence of one or the other? Well, I think that, you know, insights is a popular topic. And a lot of people say they have insights when really they should just say, hey, I've got a good data point here. Or I've got a really interesting observation. What do you guys think of that? The problem with that is that it doesn't sound as exciting as an insight. An insight is something that's deeper, that's new, uh, and different than what anybody else has noticed before. And so sometimes if the data point is new to you, you might say, hey, that's an insight. But I have a, a different definition on what an insight is, um, which is that it's a, it's like a constellation of all of those things. It is a data point plus an observation, plus a trend, plus perhaps a cultural tension, things like that, all coming together to solve a particular business problem or a marketing campaign challenge. So, I mean, it's not just an interesting tidbit, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, I can talk about all kinds of interesting things all the time. This is kind of interesting. They said that this consumer has this opinion, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, it has something to do with what I'm actually doing, right? So if I'm learning something about how people um, come to my business or my services through my podcast or my blog or whatever, it can just be, oh, interesting. We had... 12,000 people from Hungary on the blog, but we don't really work with anybody in Hungary. So who cares? No offense to that country, right? But somehow you have to tie it back to what you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. So an insight is only uh, useful if it's useful. So there are interesting insights, uh, but we're after the ones that are both interesting and useful that can tie back to the brand. And there are actually um, three kinds of insights, um, at least as I've identified them. One is a category insight. 
So that's where you build a new category based on your aha moment. So this is businesses like Netflix, Airbnb, Slack, uh, Mamava, which is a, a business out of uh, Vermont. Um, and so each of those is a category, brand new category, didn't exist before, disrupted the entire category that they kind of bumped into. Does that make sense for starters? Yeah, it does. Yep. Perfect. Um, and then there's brand insights where you reframe an existing category. So you're not creating a new category. You're just reframing the existing category uh, that you're in. So liquid death is canned water. Uh, it's more than just about the can, but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of reframing the world of water um, to what they have to offer. Or Dove reframes the idea of beauty, of the beauty category with their campaign. Um, Vital Farms is a great example of reframing the egg category around, you know, what really is, um, you know, spacious conditions for hens. And so focusing on pasture raised eggs. So they reframed uh, the consumer mindset around the category or reframed their value proposition. So that's the second kind of insight. And then the third kind of insight is campaign insights. That's that aha moment that leads to a huge campaign platform that can last for a really long time. For example, the Lay's Do Us a Flavor campaign uh, or the Snickers campaign around you're not you when you're hungry. So um, those are some examples of, of campaign insights or insights that lead to great campaigns. You know, um, the one thing I maybe want to shift to just a little bit in your book, you talk about interrogating language. And when you were just talking about um, the canned water category. So it's interesting to me. I have no idea about why anybody would drink canned water at all. I have no idea. But I'm thinking, I'm like, you know what? I wonder if there's canned water, if I can buy that here. Because so the way I recycle, believe it or not, I have this big box and the cans, the 12, I think it's 12 ounce cans. They go in there. And everything other than the cans that go in there is a total pain in my neck to recycle. I have to go over there. I have to put it in the thing, right? Except the 12 ounce cans. And I think there's a different thing, a different bag for 16 ounce cans. I don't have those. But so my point is, I would like canned water instead of the bottles, because then I can just throw it in that same recycling thing, right? To take it back. Um, so it's kind of interesting, you know, how you, how you think about it. But let's talk about interrogating language. And I think some people struggle with that because people use wishy-washy language um, or they use the wrong term or they don't, you know, it's not exactly within context. So let's talk about how do you do that? Is it just by you're trying to figure out the context or you're trying to um, understand what they actually mean, even though they use technically the wrong word because nobody is a walking dictionary? Um, or, or how do you like how does that work in the uh, in the actual process? Yeah, that's a great question. So listening, it starts with active listening with typically with your customers, which again, you can find, you can look closely or, or, or you know, do some data mining on Amazon reviews or, um, you know, call center transcripts, or you can uh, figure some things out from focus groups. I was doing a focus group um, with some people at a, for a quick service restaurant, and um, we were talking about eating healthy. And despite, you know, the prompt being around, so when do you eat healthy? And, and, you know, tell us more about that. This one person in the focus group kept talking about eating well, as if it were synonymous to eating healthy. 
Um, and I and I paused and I said, hey, what, what does that word mean to you? We've been talking about eating healthy. You keep using this word well. What's the difference to you between eating healthy and eating well? And then they opened up and they talked about how eating well has a certain amount of flavor to it. Like when you eat well, there's maybe a little bit of decadence to the to the flavor profile of the food as opposed to eating healthy, which is like naked chicken and broccoli. It doesn't really appeal to the flavor. It's kind of like eating cardboard. You sort of force yourself to do it. But when you're eating well, you can you can both eat healthy, but also feel good about what you're eating. And so just one word. Uh, another example would be, um, you know, in terms of language, how um, with with one uh, elastic bandage company out there, you, you know, you might say that their approach to wound care is how do we, how do we um, hide life's little mistakes, right? And then there's another brand out there that says how do we celebrate life's little adventures? So, so that's a great example of of a brand. That's the Welly brand, where they talk about bravery badges right? And they're colorful and they're fun and, and kids and parents love them. And just reframing it with that one word, bravery badges, and then celebrate life's little adventures um, can really put you on a different path uh, by interrogating the language and, and thinking of a, a new way to frame the language as well. Yeah, very interesting that, you know, how people use language and how, uh, how it's interpreted. Um, Anyways, but how do you, I know you talk about a lot of category uh, creation, and I always find that very interesting because, you know, it, I mean, there, there might have been a trend even or a wave where everybody was doing, uh, trying to do that, right? Everybody's trying to create a new category. And at some point, it's uh, it's pretty difficult, right? I mean, to do that, if it's uh, depending on what it is, I guess, if it's something, there's a huge need, then maybe, maybe not so much. But uh, certainly it seems like it to me, but at what point do you take these insights and you create, you decide it is the right thing to do to create uh, a new category or it just something to evolve the category you're already in? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a tough question because you don't always know. It's not, it's not perfect. The information doesn't live in a perfect way, but let's just look at Netflix, for example, right? So what were the different uh, dots in the constellation, which is this metaphor that I use about insights, that insights are like a constellation, and it combines all of these different data dots or these different dots um, that are available to everybody. So with Netflix, you know, the first thing was that uh, VHS uh, changed to DVD. If, if DVD hadn't come around, I don't think Netflix would have ever come into being because those lightweight, flat DVDs uh, needed to exist for the founders of Netflix to then kind of say, okay, how are we going to push this through the United States Postal Service? Um, another thing that needed to happen uh, was the existence of Amazon. So Amazon launched in 1994, Netflix launched in 1997. And this was by no accident because people started to become more comfortable reviewing things or, or seeing uh, book summaries and things like that on Amazon initially. That was kind of their main product besides the books themselves was, hey, here's the, um, here's the, here's the book summary. Now you can make your decision, buy that. It's easy. You don't need to go in a bookstore for that. So then Netflix comes along and says, okay, people are getting more comfortable browsing online for these things. What do we need? We need movie summaries. We need these lightweight DVDs. And we need to be able to ship them. And they they spend hundreds of hours studying the United States Postal Service for how to work within their system um, to, to get these DVDs shipped. 
And then there were the three big pain points at the time. For anybody who remembers back in the day, um, uh, Blockbuster was kind of the the, the king of, of video rental and, you know, annoying late fees. I saw somewhere, I think it was in 2000, Blockbuster had $800 million worth of revenue from late fees, which was 16% of their revenue. So that's a, that's a good thing for a Blockbuster, frustrating for consumers. That's a pain point for consumers. And then another pain point uh, was even just you know, going to the video store in the first place. And some people might say, oh, you know, I didn't mind. I liked going there. But, you know, we can all remember going maybe with a friend, leaving empty-handed, or having to go there to return the video to avoid those frustrating late fees. So there are these different pain points that existed uh, within that video rental ecosystem. And all of those things were there for people to see. Those were like the stars in the sky. But then the founders of Netflix came along and they connected the dots between all those things. And they said, I think we have a new idea here, which is we're going to switch from video rentals to a subscription model. We're going to push things through the United States Postal Service as a totally different distribution method than had ever been done before. And then third, we're going to really ramp up our data-driven recommendations, similar to what was happening, starting to happen on Amazon, which is if you liked this, you're probably going to like this. So data-driven uh, engine recommendations. You know, what's interesting about uh, Netflix too, is I was thinking as you, I mean, certainly I remember those days when all that happened, but um, today I watch Netflix, quite frankly, because it's just the, um, the danger of me wasting too much time on something that I don't even enjoy is so much smaller then as I if I were to go to the movies, right? I go to the movies, you go to one movie, and it's like, if, if you don't like it, you're kind of stuck there or you can leave. On Netflix, if I don't like something after five minutes, I'll just watch something else on Netflix or I'll go to Amazon Prime or I'll go to whatever, Peacock. I mean, there's a gazillion options nowadays. So um, certainly it seems like the category that they created, I mean, they are also evolved over mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. um, how do companies, um, and of course, you know, Gen... Exennial here, I guess. That's the generation I'm in. Um, you know, there's always a little bit of fear, right? The, the time we grew up, oh, we don't want to hurt what we're currently doing, whatever. How do you evolve the category and how do you know it's the right time? You know, I mean, if if you would have, and I don't know if this happened on Netflix, but if, if I were to run Netflix in the old days and you would say to me, hey, we're going to totally transition to streaming, I can see that some people who are really married to the idea of sending stuff in the mail, which they just stopped doing not too long ago, mm -hmm. interestingly, um, like they might be like, well, we don't want to do that. We don't want to hurt the current category we're in. Mm -hmm. Well, they, they had that, um, that brief period of time where it was Netflix Quickster. Do you remember that? they were going to spin off the two different branches of the business. There was going to be a streaming component and there was going to be the DVD component. And everybody threw their hands up and were like, no, I don't want to pay two different prices for two different things. I want, you know, sort of all included stuff. And, and so how they evolved, first of all, they said, okay, this isn't working. They lost a lot of uh, share value uh, in a very, fairly short period of time. As a result of that decision, they decided to, to stop that fairly quickly. And then, um, you know, they, they're constantly analyzing their own data to evolve their offerings, bring different people onto the platform. One of my favorite examples, actually, I've got two with Netflix. One is Adam Sandler. So he 
signed a $250 million deal with Netflix. And people were like, what is Netflix doing? This is crazy. Like Adam Sandler continues to bomb at the box office. But the thing is, they were looking at the periphery, which is one of the techniques I talk about in the book. So the data that everyone else was looking at with regard to Adam Sandler was U.S. box office earnings, critical reviews of his films, Rotten Tomato scores. And if that was all you were looking at, you would think this was a really bad move. But the data that Netflix was looking at was his global box office performance, high repeat viewing stats in countries around the world, and the volume of submitted ratings for his movie. So every time Netflix would put a new movie, a new Adam Sandler movie up in Brazil or some other country, straight to the top, but always go straight to the top. And they're a global company. So they're thinking about things a little bit differently. They're looking at data sets that are different. And that's one of the ways that they've, they've evolved in terms of some of their offerings. Another example that I love from Netflix is, um, that I just learned about actually, is the way they use their data to, to see where are people skipping. You mentioned, hey, if I don't like a movie, I can stop it at the five minute mark or the 10 minute mark. Well, one of the things that Netflix started to realize by analyzing their own data was how much people were fast forwarding through credits. Makes perfect sense. But they introduced the skip intro button and then everybody else has followed suit since then. But that's like a little bit of a product evolution that didn't exist before. But they looked at their data, they said X percent of people keep doing this. What can we do to improve the user experience even if it's just a micro improvement? And they made the skip intro button. Well, you know, I, I give you credit for saying that everyone followed suit, but not everybody did because I was watching um, episodes. I don't know what the seasons were. I think I think Young Sheldon is currently season seven, and that's going to wrap up their run. So I must have watched season one through five, roughly, on one network, Netflix, where you could skip the intro, which is only like 22 seconds or something. But you can skip all that. And then there was something else. Oh, oh, you know what it was? You could skip to the next episode like super quickly at the end. Um, and then they didn't have season six. So season mm. six, I had to go over to um, somewhere else, maybe YouTube TV. I, it could be wrong. But wherever I went, they didn't have those two things. And I'm literally sitting here because I watched those seasons like back to back to back to back. Mm. And I'm sitting here. I said to my wife, I'm like, oh, this is horrible. I can't skip the... 22 seconds of intro i can't skip to the next episode you know like i wasted a whole minute per episode it's like 22 minutes over the next how many days here so it's kind of interesting how those little things actually make a difference um maybe the next three minutes here let's um talk about let's um turn a little bit and talk about how do you sell uh, what we know about customers internally, you know, how do you sell it to people? How do we get them to buy it? And then how do we make sure we actually analyze it correctly? I mean, I know plenty of examples where, you know, somebody says something and it's misinterpreted. And now that's the gospel, even though uh, it wasn't quite the right uh, phrasing or, or playback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, selling an insight is incredibly important. That's that's maybe more than half the work itself is is being able to articulate the insight, uh, and that's that's the last part of the book. Uh, so, um, you know, how do you sell an insight? Well, you got to take your cues from some of the great storytellers out there, and, and that brings us back to movies again. So, you know, how do movies? How do storytellers? Whether that's Pixar. Or if you're if you're into murder mysteries or things like that, how do they hook your attention? What do great movies and television shows or or podcasts do 
to hook your attention in the very beginning. Sometimes they'll use, uh, you know, well, if it's a movie, you know, it might be a dramatic scene, something that just, you know, catches you off guard. If it's in a presentation, it might be uh, a mind-blowing stat, something that, um, you know, people just had never heard of before. Um, or, or that stat is reframed in a different way. So, so that can be a way to hook people's attention. But then you got to keep people along for the ride. And if you just reveal your insight right away and say, hey, here's my insight statement. I'm not going to give you any backstory or any information. It's just going to fall flat. People aren't going to be able to, to really absorb how did you get there. So it's a little bit like you got to take them through the jungle. Um, and so you've got to go through the jungle very quickly uh, of, you know, this finding and this finding and this finding. And then people are nodding. They're in the state of like, oh, yeah, I've seen that too. I've seen that too. And I've experienced that personally. And then when you get to the actual reveal of the insight, they're almost able to finish your sentence for you. And there's not a lot of combat over that. Now, again, the articulation is super important. Words are super important. But I liken it to, to movies with great plot twists. So if you go back and watch The Sixth Sense or Memento or Knives Out, any of those types of movies, or Gone Girl, where there are some really big plot twists, usually toward the very end, you'll say, oh my gosh, all the clues were there the whole time. And so when you're trying to sell an insight, take your cues from great storytellers and kind of sprinkle these little clues uh, around in your presentation or in the one pager or the lead up to the insight or the insight statement so that, um, you know, people feel like I've been along for the ride. It was a short ride and now we've gotten to the insight. I think it's an interesting concept, especially, I think it's actually very hard to pull off, especially, to, I mean, even staying with the Netflix example. I mean, there's people joking in Netflix groups on, on Facebook, right? I, uh, what are the best movies to watch while you're on your phone? Um, so like those clues, you might actually miss them, right? Same in a meeting, you send something to somebody, they got 12 other things, mm -hmm. um, going on, right? They got notifications over here, whatever email coming in over here. And, um, certainly it's harder than ever to get people to pay attention, uh, even if you can officially formally demand it, but, uh, we know how that goes. Uh, Chris, time always flies when you have fun. really appreciate you coming on the show. The last minute here, um, tell us uh, who should connect with you, who should reach out to you. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, any insights yet is is really focused on anybody in business because everybody wants insights because they need to, you know, have a competitive advantage and they needed the insights yesterday. So these these techniques that I've laid out in the book, some of which we've talked about today, these techniques are usable by, you know, anybody in the marketing department, um, in business. Um, in the uh, in the creative departments as well, because it's everybody's job to come up with insights. So strategists, creatives, marketers, uh, it's very popular in MBA programs and advertising programs. So those are the kind of the main people who have been uh, reading it, writing reviews, saying good things, and reaching back out to me. And then as far as following up with me, if you have any questions, uh, you can certainly find me on LinkedIn at Chris Kocheck. Um, and I also have a, a newsletter uh, called the light bulb newsletter, which comes out every Thursday, which focuses on, uh, you know, an aha moment or three, three different things that will give you an aha moment, very short read two to three minutes each week. Uh, that's a great way to connect as well. Thanks for tuning in. Please rate and review the business storytelling show on your favorite podcast platform 
and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. See you then! Thank you.